Back in 2013, ABC News correspondent Rebecca Jarvis was working on a story about high medical costs. And we featured a woman who was spending a lot of money on blood tests. And after that story ran, Rebecca got a pitch about a new startup. Hey, there's this blood testing company, Theranos, and they can save your viewers a lot of money. She checked it out, but couldn't get anyone to independently verify that these Theranos blood tests, which only used a finger prick and not a traditional vein stick, were actually going to be better and cheaper. It was one of those things where, huh, this just, it it doesn't fully line up. It doesn't live up to what it would take for me to even consider covering it as a solution. So Rebecca didn't do the story, but other reporters did. And then shortly after that pitch, Elizabeth started showing up in all of these places and was very much a celebrity. Elizabeth was Elizabeth Holmes, Stanford dropout, Theranos founder and CEO, billionaire superstar, and media darling. Elizabeth Holmes left Stanford University at the age of 19 to build a company. A healthcare pioneer is being compared to visionaries like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. This morning, Elizabeth Holmes is part of the new Time 100 list just out. Holmes promised to revolutionize blood testing. She was young, rich, charismatic, and seemingly everywhere. Whenever there's a quote-unquote glass ceiling, there's an iron woman right behind it. But the Theranos blood testing devices didn't work like they were supposed to. The company was secretly running patient tests on standard commercial machines, even as they told doctors, patients, and the media otherwise. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes has now officially been indicted on federal wire fraud charges. The U.S. attorney... In 2018, the United States filed criminal charges against her and her former CEO and boyfriend, Sonny Balwani. Next week, three years after she was first indicted, Holmes goes on trial for conspiracy and fraud. She faces up to 20 years in prison and has pleaded not guilty. It might seem like a slam-dunk case for the prosecution. Many of Holmes's lies are documented. But Rebecca says that doesn't mean it's a guaranteed victory. After all, this is Elizabeth Holmes we're talking about. If Elizabeth was able to convince, as she did, investors, former secretaries of state, entire groups of people, auditoriums filled with people, if she was able to convince so many of her vision already, why is it improbable that she would be able to convince 12 jurors? This week on the show, Elizabeth Holmes on trial. We dig into her story with one of the reporters who knows it best. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. When Elizabeth Holmes was nine, she wrote a letter to her father saying she wanted to discover something new that mankind didn't know was possible. This precocity was a key part of her public image. She dropped out of Stanford at 19 and started Theranos with the promise that her machines could shake up an industry that hadn't changed in decades. She wore Steve Jobs-inspired black turtlenecks, was photographed holding a minuscule vial of blood, and the company's marketing slogan was, one tiny drop changes everything. I would describe her as somebody who is incredibly ambitious, who at a very young age, decided that she wanted to change the world, who made a decision to drop out of school, left school with a minimal amount of education and minimal amount of background. She surrounded herself with people who were very powerful, but not necessarily people who were attuned to the work that she was specifically doing. Rebecca Jarvis spent years covering Holmes and made an investigative podcast about her called The Dropout. I listened to your show. I was I was pretty captivated by it. And the, I feel like the title, The Dropout, was like a sort of nod, wink at the self-mythologizing that Elizabeth Holmes put put forward. Can you, I guess, describe some of the myths that she tried to make about herself? And I guess why you think she did that, you know, mm-hmm. wearing a black turtleneck like Steve Jobs. Like, why do all that stuff? Look, it's it's hard to fully be inside of her head, but I do think that we are so frequently taught the myth of Steve Jobs. Everybody knows Steve Jobs always wore the black turtleneck. So there's, I, I think there's a reverse engineering there that might have gone on for her that it, it's like the most basic things that a person could copy that suddenly in her mind made her the equivalent of a Steve Jobs and also in the mind of the press. Yeah, everybody bought it. At 19 years old, Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford. She had a little tuition money and a big idea. Now at 31, she's what lots of teenagers with that background likely strive to become. The youngest billionaire in the world. Is that heady when you hear that? You know, it's it's not what matters. Um, what matters is... If you go back and listen to the narratives that Holmes and the company were putting forward in 2013, 2014, um, she's saying the same thing over and over again. She's scared of needles. She wants to democratize health care. What was the elevator pitch for Theranos? And why do you think it was so appealing? Well, I think, look, every any PR person that you're going to talk to is going to tell you to stay on message. And she did that. She had this message. People mm-hmm. don't like big needles being stuck into their arm. Uh, part of it... You're one of those people, right? Uh, deeply so, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was afraid of needles. I sought to change the world. I started out as this precocious young woman. I am a dropout of Stanford, one of the best universities in the country. So I was weeded out of many students. 
She's an outlier. She raised almost a billion dollars in capital. And this is something that for women, it's almost unheard of. Holmes attracted some of Silicon Valley's most prominent investors. She had three former cabinet secretaries on her board. Her company struck a deal with Walgreens to put Theranos blood testing centers in thousands of drugstores. But it all began to unravel in 2015 when the Wall Street Journal reported that the Theranos machines didn't work like they were supposed to and that the company was secretly using commercial machines to test patient samples. While Holmes and her CEO and lover, Sonny Belwani, were publicly touting the company's success and profitability, privately, things were falling apart. Since then, Holmes has settled separate civil fraud charges with the Securities and Exchange Commission without admitting guilt. But what the government has to prove now in the criminal case is that Holmes wasn't just a true believer with bad luck, but someone who intended to deceive investors and patients. The case with the investors is an easier one for Elizabeth. Because this idea of Silicon Valley puffery, fake it till you make it, that might work. Oh, that the investors are sophisticated people and like they should have checked. That's right. And that these were early stage investments and they should have had a better sense of things. Now, that said, she's lost some of the civil battles on that front or Theranos has lost some of the civil battles on that front. There have been uh, settlements along the way where investors have been paid some degree back of their original investments because they claimed that they made the investment under false pretenses and that claim uh, was settled out of court. The second part of the prosecution's case is about patients, people who used Theranos blood tests and got inaccurate and sometimes devastating results. People like breast cancer survivor Sherry Ackert. Sherry had breast cancer. She had recovered. She went out, got a Theranos test. The Theranos test came back showing levels that would indicate her breast cancer had returned. Hmm. Sherry has a week of her life where she believes, based on a Theranos test, that her breast cancer has returned. It only becomes clear that that is not the case when she takes a blood test that is not a Theranos test. There are people who thought one thing about their lives and the diametric opposite was the case. And it was because of a Theranos test. And I think in the last year and a half, I've thought so much about these Theranos tests. And what if in the time of COVID, there was something like that that existed? Like, what if we were fully misinformed about healthcare and our healthcare decisions based on faulty information? Hmm. Sherry Ackert, the woman I mentioned, she has been subpoenaed to testify. Um, there are 11 patients whose experiences you'll be hearing about in the courtroom. The defense is sort of multi-pronged, but really central to it is this issue of a missing database. What What is that? Why does it matter? Okay. So there's this database that includes results of Theranos tests, millions of them, over the course of a handful of years. They, they could be very useful because you'd love to see if millions of tests were inaccurate, if a huge percentage of the tests based on these results were inaccurate, that is very useful to the government's case that at least that this company wasn't doing what they said that they were supposed to be doing. And they knew it because they that had someone the must have known that that these results were inaccurate if there were so many of them. That's right. Theranos 
gave the government what they say is access to this database. The government says we never actually got access to it. The, the file never worked. We could never access the data. Theranos, once the company was dissolved, wiped its servers. The database is gone. The question is now, how's the jury going to respond to the evidence of individuals coming forward and saying, here's my story. I got an inaccurate test versus having a database to back up and say, statistically, here's a large percentage of people who got inaccurate tests. So the defense will argue this is all anecdotal. You've got 11 people who say that they got bad results, but like that's 11 people. Millions of people got these tests. At the end of the day, though, and I have talked to a lot of legal experts on this, they don't think this makes or breaks the case. They Every single legal expert comes back to Elizabeth, that Elizabeth Holmes herself, what she presents to the jury, whether 12 people buy the story that Elizabeth Holmes did not intend to do wrong. When we come back, the Elizabeth Holmes of 2021 isn't the same person she was just three years ago. So who will the jury see at trial? You're listening to What Next TBD. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and I'm talking with ABC News business correspondent Rebecca Jarvis. Three years have passed since Elizabeth Holmes was indicted for fraud and conspiracy. She left her boyfriend and business partner Sonny Balwani behind, started a new relationship, and just recently gave birth. And one question I had for Rebecca is exactly which Elizabeth Holmes the jury will see. Because when Theranos started to unravel, Holmes was argumentative and denied that anything was wrong. Even in the SEC depositions, she only admits to mistakes and not knowing things. When the company started to be exposed, Elizabeth Holmes seemed seemed to double down. I wonder, as we prepare for the trial, what that behavior might tell you about her and how she is going to come into this trial. That is such an important question. It's one I've asked a lot of legal analysts and people who are close to Elizabeth what they expect. And I think the key question is, is Elizabeth herself going to testify at her trial? The issue there is the SEC depositions, which Elizabeth conducted in 2017. In in the depositions, she is it's mostly taking the fifth. I mean, she might not explicitly say that, yeah, but she, she doesn't says, know. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. So which which Elizabeth are we going to see at trial? We know what, uh, one one thing that we will see at trial is that we will see a recent mom, new mom. She will have time to be with her newborn son. There's breaks that will be set up and she will also mm-hmm. have three individuals in the courtroom with her family and or friends who will be at her side. Holmes's defense may also try to argue that she was under extreme duress and couldn't tell right from wrong at the time. We don't know a lot about this approach yet, but court documents hint at it. The defense has filed a number of of documents to this effect that there could be a conversation around a mental disease or defect. The defense has 
in these documents suggested that there's a specialist, an expert that they could call on at trial who is an expert in sexual assault and the impact of that. Now, I've talked to a number of legal experts who believe that that type of defense, a mental disease or defect, can really backfire with a jury. Juries are far less likely to buy into um, the idea of insanity or, or somebody doing something not in their right mind, particularly when it's a series of events over the course of many years versus a, you know, a one-time breaking point. Gender is so complicated in this story. And and on the one hand, the, the path for a female founder is unquestionably harder than it is for a man. On the other, so many people, including George Schultz and, and Jim Mattis, who were on her board, seem to maybe look the other way past some of these red flags, in part because they wanted a young woman to succeed. And then maybe there's the idea that people came down harder on her because she's a, a, a young woman. I mean, I wonder what role you think gender plays in all of this and how that might play out in the courtroom. Yeah, I, I think it's incredibly complicated. I, I read an article just the other day, and I've heard this from a handful of female founders who say they have struggled in the wake of Elizabeth Holmes to raise money from the venture community because there are people in that community who look at Elizabeth Holmes and say, well, are, are you the next Elizabeth Holmes? As though that would yeah. only fit one gender. Fraud is genderless. We see stories of fraud in in both sets. I'm really struck by the fact that all of these board members and investors, um, many of them never had to pay the piper yeah. or own up for, for their part in promoting Elizabeth Holmes and her lies. Do you think that that Silicon Valley has learned anything about kind of what role investors and a sort of professional board member class plays in, in things like this? I would love to say yes. I think that the sad truth is that history continues to repeat itself. This idea of affinity investing, it still exists saying, oh, I know that guy or girl. They're great. They're brilliant. Put your money with them. That, that still fully exists today. I do think there are some who will be more cautious, but I don't mean to be cynical, but I don't I don't get that impression. But like maybe it's not such a hot idea to be so fixated on on the idea of one mercurial entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. But that doesn't seem to have changed. No, that doesn't seem to have changed. But I would also say, look, I'm sure that someone in the venture community who hears this conversation will come right back to us and say, oh, press, you love to celebrate individuals in this community. So how many people Fair. did you report on who you said were the next it thing? I think about where society is right now in the middle of a pandemic in this particularly intractable feeling phase. And I wonder if that will influence the way the jury thinks about this, that that the stakes are higher, that it's not just like, ooh, cool new technology startup, but that this has such profound effects on people's lives. 
And I feel like in that way, maybe this this timing um, maybe is not great for her. I've thought a lot about that, too. And I, I agree with that. I also think that this idea of her lifestyle, which, again, is something her attorneys fought very hard to keep out of the courtroom, the private jets, the run-ins with celebrity, with former presidents, the handbags, the makeup, the clothes, the shoes, all of these things, which were a part of the benefits to her, to being the founder and CEO of the company. She did enrich herself and she did live a really good life on the idea that the technology worked. I've heard people say that there's more writing on this than than just Elizabeth Holmes, that if if she goes to prison, that it might be something that says to Silicon Valley, like, hey, fake it till you make it is not a great way to do business. And if she doesn't, then it's just like game on for whatever you want to do. Do you think that's fair? I do. I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley are watching this case. They certainly watch the story unfold and it will send a signal. Rebecca Jarvis, thank you very much. Thank you, Lizzie. This was great. Rebecca Jarvis is ABC News Chief Business, Technology, and Economics Correspondent. The new season of her podcast, The Dropout, starts on August 31st. That's the same day jury selection begins in the Holmes trial, and opening arguments are set for September 8th. That is our show for today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We are edited by Tori Bosch and Allison Benedict. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And I want to recommend you take a moment and go back and listen to Tuesday's episode of What Next. It's about the survivors of R. Kelly's abuse and getting justice for them. What Next? We'll be back next week. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.